0: How are we doing? My name is Charlie, if we haven't met, and uh, you get the pleasure of dealing with me this morning, I guess, on this beautiful day, right? So this, uh, I'll start with a question. What do you trust in? Who do you trust in? This is a story my, my family's familiar with, but when I was in elementary school, I learned an important lesson about when you trust in the wrong things, it tends to add in badly, so I don't, I don't remember the genesis of this idea. I don't remember how I came upon this notion. But for some reason, I thought it would be a fun and adventurous idea to climb up on the roof of my parents' house with a trash bag and then jump off. So I remember getting the, the stepladder and setting it up against the house and climbing up on the roof. And mine jump, probably like maybe fourth or fifth grade. So I, I get up there and I've got this jo- and not one of those like weak, wimpy little trash bags. I got one of like the big hefty ones that you can throw nails into and it's good to go. So I climb up there and I get up to the edge of the roof and I'm looking off and I'm thinking, okay, well, if I can get past the hedge, I should be good to go. And I kind of rev up the, the courage and I leap off the roof. And I quickly found out that my trusty trash bag wasn't really a good parachute. And gravity won the day and I hit the ground with a thump, and fortunately I wasn't too injured, but it definitely knocked the wind out of me. And I learned in that moment that when you trust in the wrong things, it ends badly. Can you relate to that experience? You ever trusted in something that let you down? Got the wind knocked out of you? Well, today's text that we're gonna be looking at is one that calls us to trust in God and in His ways. To trust in God and in His ways. It is a messianic prophecy of Christ where, where God reveals in some of the clearest language possible who it is that he will bring justice and the flourishing of life through. And this is a relevant text for us this morning because in the time that, there was, that, that this prophecy was given, the nation of Israel was going through a very tumultuous time. So for example, what's happening is the nation has been divided. There's the northern and southern kingdoms. And the northern kingdom has already been destroyed by the attacking Assyrians. So you have this situation where the people of Israel, or rather the, the nation of Judah, is looking up In Israel, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, has been decimated. The people are being led off as captives. And then Isaiah has already given this prophecy to the king of Judah, Hezekiah, telling him that the same judgment is coming upon them. And this is later fulfilled, not by the Assyrians, but rather by the nation of Babylon. And to make matters worse, Hezekiah, who's the king who's supposed to be concerned about his people, we find out that Hezekiah doesn't even really care. Because he finds out from Isaiah, well, this isn't going to happen during my lifetime, so it's maybe my kids' or my grandkids' problems, so I don't have to worry about it. It's all good for me. And so if you're, an, if you're a person living in this time, this is a pretty, pretty tense situation, isn't it? Where do you look to find hope? Our king doesn't care about us. The, na- the, the northern nation's been decimated by this... this Coming kingdom of Assyria, we're now being told that the same thing is going to befall us at some point. Where do I look to find hope? Where can I place my trust? Not in the king, not like obviously something is wrong here. So what do I do? What we're going to see is that God was calling them in this prophecy and calling us today in our own tumultuous times to turn from idols of power and comfort and to trust in God and his ways. Key theme is this, and this is what I want you to kind of, th- how, how I want to frame what we're going to see here this morning is this: is that fullness of life, fullness of life and justice are found only in God. So we must turn from idols of power and comfort as we follow Christ in the way of love and service of others. Fullness of life and justice are found only in God, so we must turn from our idols of power and comfort as we follow Christ in the way of love and service of others. All right, so to get things started, um, we're going to be looking at the first four verses of Isaiah 42. So if you still got it open, read along with me. Um, and again, if you, if you don't, you want to grab the Pew Bible, this is going to be on page 602. Page 602. So beginning in verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I'm uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So behold my servant. So he opens this this section with this declaration, behold my servant. And, and what's happening here is that God is making a distinction between his servant and the empty idols that his people have been uh, inclined to follow. And you would, you would only know this if you read a little bit before and even after this verse, um, but the preceding section in Isaiah, God is ridiculing the idols. He's mocking them. He says that they are powerless to give knowledge of the past or future. He says that they are less than nothing. They are a delusion, they're an empty wind, and he says that any who trust in idols are an abomination. And it's like, well, with that uh, kind of assessment of what idols are, you have to ask the question, well, why would people then follow idols? Why do we today give ourselves over to things that ultimately let us down? Why do we trust in trash bags, right? Well, the reason is, is because we think that they're going to give us a flourishing of life and justice. That's why they did it, that's why we do it. We're inclined to trust the wrong things. But trusting in them is like trusting in a trash bag to save you from gravity. It's just not going to work out well. And so in contrast, God declares his servant to be the one who will bring forth justice to the nations. His servant will be the one to establish and show the way for how life might flourish among us as his people. So who is this servant? It's an important question to ask. Because if you start looking into this, you're going to find that there are, there are differing opinions, for example, on this text. So some see this, this passage in Isaiah 42 as speaking to the nation of Israel in a figurative way. And an example of this is found in Isaiah 41, verses 8 and 9. So if you're there, you can look back. But it says this, but you, Israel, this is Isaiah 41, verses 8 and 9, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So there's reason why some would read Isaiah 42 and think that God is speaking or Isaiah is speaking in respect to this servant as the nation of Israel as a whole in a figurative way. However, others myself as one of them, believe that this text is actually pointing to an individual with messianic hopes. One of the key reasons for this is this is how the apostle, the early disciple, Matthew, reads this text. You'll find this, for example, in Matthew uh, chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. And just so you know, anytime one of the New Testament authors who was inspired by God reads an Old Testament text in a certain way, we do well to follow their example. Amen. So this is how Matthew reads it. Additionally, Isaiah 42 lacks the additional qualifiers like you see in Isaiah 41 verses 8 and 9. Isaiah 41 specifically says he's speaking to the nation of Israel and calls him his servant. You don't see this in Isaiah 42. And with that, there's, there's actual indications within Isaiah 42 itself there's, that, that an individual is being specifically spoken to. We're going to see one here in a little bit in Isaiah 42, 6, which the servant is made... Um, or rather the servant is distinguished from the nation of Israel and the the nations, the the broader nations, the Gentiles as well. And then lastly, the scope of what this servant accomplishes, justice among the nations, the flourishing of life. These are clear messianic ideas and, and, and notions, and so the scope of this is clearly pointing to a Messiah. I also think it's important to highlight that justice to the nations is a central theme. And when I say nations, one of the things that you need to bear in mind in this text is that the same word for nation is the, or rather the word for nation is the same word that's used for Gentile in the Hebrew. So nations and Gentiles, it's the same term, the same language. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a a Jewish descendant, you're a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. And so this is God looking at his people, the nation of Israel, those who are descended from Abraham, and indicating to them, I'm, I'm going to do something for you, but also for the Gentiles, for the nations. So justice is central, right? Justice is mentioned three times in just four verses, in verses 1, 3, and 4. And in his commentary, John Oswalt notes this. He says, this connotes much more than judicial equity. This is that life-giving order which exists when the creation is functioning in accordance with the design of its Lord. And this emphasis on justice to the nations, or among the nations, connects this servant with the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 26, where he told Abraham that through you, through your descendants, the nations, the Gentiles, shall be blessed. And again, this is highlighting for us that whom... God is addressing, or whom he's speaking about in Isaiah 42, is his Messiah, the one who's going to bring into the fullness of reality God's long-standing plan for the world. But also notice this, how is this servant going to bring about justice and secure the flourishing of life? How is he going to do it? Verse 2 says, he doesn't cry aloud or lift up his voice in the streets. This servant isn't going to come in the assumed way like all other men in history who have presented themselves as someone whom we should follow. And I think the the passage that Pastor Mike read just a few moments ago during the children's sermon is exemplary of this. Jesus doesn't have a marketing team. He doesn't have a PR team. He doesn't have a political committee. He's not going to come through the normal platforms of power and prestige. This servant is going to come in in a different way. Verse 3, though, it says, A bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. This servant isn't going to establish his reign of justice. He isn't going to bring forth the flourishing of life on the other end of a sword. There have been many men in history who have claimed to bring about peace. So, for example, if you're a fan of ancient history and you study Rome, there was a phrase called Pax Ramona, the peace of Rome. You know how Rome established peace? They killed anyone who opposed them. So there's been plenty who have claimed to bring peace, but it was always on the edge of a sword. But Jesus' servant says he will not break the bruised reed or extinguish the faltering wick. He's going to be marked by gentleness and care that uplifts and strengthens the weak and the weary. And lastly, in verse 4, it says that his law, his Torah is something the world waits for and hopes for and, and one of the things we need to understand that the word behind this, Torah, is much bigger than law, we tend to think of law in, in a narrow sense of right and wrong, but Torah is actually a way of living instruction, a way of life his way and his rule are what the world ultimately longs for and his reign will bring life to all who submit themselves to him alright, so Israel, and this is the problem, here's where we're going to make the turn Israel's issue, Israel's problem was that they were hoping and wanting, and what they thought was going to happen was that this servant, that God was going to secure life and justice for them through the subjugation and defeat and destruction of the Gentile nations. Now, we can already see, well, there's a little bit of a disconnect between that want, that hope, and what God seems to be painting for us here in Isaiah 42. See, God had other plans, and his plans involved the redemption of the Gentiles, the restoration of the Gentiles, and not their destruction. And it's important to note this, ten- this tension or different isn't an isolated biblical idea or theme. So one of my, uh, my personal favorite, my kids' favorite stories in the Bible is the story of Jonah. Four chapters. How many of you know familiar with the story? It's the story of the, the guy who gets swallowed by the fish and spit out, right? Well, what's interesting about Jonah is that God calls Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians, and I want you to to warn them of my judgment. And in, in the early chapters of Jonah, what we see Jonah doing is saying he runs away. He goes in the opposite direction of Assyria, of Nineveh. And so we're kind of wondering at the early story, well, maybe he's afraid, maybe he's scared, maybe there's something going on here. But if you read to the very end of the story, we actually find out that the reason Jonah didn't want to go preach to Nineveh, it's not because he was afraid. He hated them. He hated them. And he wanted God to destroy them. He despised them. And it's this comical story of this this half-hearted, like begrudging servant who finally, God, gets to the city, he preaches, the people repent. And there's this incredible story of repentance and and God's mercy coming out on on this Gentile nation. And then Jonah gets angry, and he goes and sits up on a hill still hoping something bad's gonna happen. And when God speaks to him, he's like, why are you angry, Jonah? He's like, because I knew this was gonna happen. I knew you're merciful. And I don't want mercy for these guys. I want them to die. It's not an isolated idea. You see, God's servant was marked by humility, gentleness, and ultimately a love for the Gentile nations. In this side of the revelation of Christ, we can look back with clarity because we see this fulfilled in Jesus, the king who was born in a stable. He didn't come in pomp and present himself in this great kind of array of, look at me, the king. He was born to a poor family with the animals in a stable. The king who serves his subjects. Jesus says, I am among you not as one whom you shall serve, but one who serves the many. The king who wore the crown of thorns, dying upon the cross for the sins of the world. You see, we can look back with clarity and say, wow, this this is pointing to Jesus. He came in that gentle spirit. He came in that that way that doesn't bring destruction, but rather uplifts the weak and, and sustains those who are struggling. And so seeing Jesus, we know that his way of establishing justice is one of love and service. And so we must turn from our idols of power and love, others, as Christ has loved us. This is a very relevant text for us today, just as it was for the nation of Israel, given our current climate of cultural and political instability and upheaval. Because we're looking around going, where do we trust? What do we hope in? There's a lot of tension And I think our hope, just like the Israelites, is often too much in idols of control, of controlling the levers of political power in this country. Our trust is far too often in the idols of a particular political party that we're inclined to be more aligned with. And though the Israelites may have lain before graven images of animals and various other ones, we're just as inclined today, but the animals we lay down before look like donkeys and elephants and bears and bulls were just as idolatrous as they were. And our Gentiles, today, go by the name of Republican or Democrat or Conservative or Liberal, depending on which party you are more inclined to support and align yourself with. And just like Jonah, we can't envision loving and serving them, only defeating and conquering them. So I want you to examine your hearts. Look within yourself. The dominant message that we find in the media and in culture today is one of war. Not love and service. They're the enemies. They need to be defeated, they need to be destroyed, they need to be removed for power, because we need to be the ones at the the levers of power. And anything else other than that is Armageddon and the end of the world. So I want you to think, what is the dominant message that guides your own heart as you look at our culture today? Are you guided by the spirit of gentleness and love and service, Or do you tend to frame things in terms of, they're the enemy, this is a battle, we have to win, I have to defeat them. But is this meant to be our way? Does the Apostle Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 7 sound crazy or or sound like wise counsel to you? He says this, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? You see, to many who gather under the banner of Christ, this kind of counsel from the Apostle Paul sounds absolutely unthinkable. It sounds asinine. It sounds asinine. But what if this way, the way that Paul is describing here, the way that I think reflects the servant whom whom God is promising to his nation that we know is Jesus, and we can see Jesus modeling this way through the Gospels, if you read that, what if this way is the one that actually bears fruit for the kingdom of Christ? What if this is the way that actually extends justice and well-being and wholeness, which is what we ultimately yearn for? And yes, it seems counterintuitive to us, but that's because we're sinners inclined towards idolatry. One of the best examples, I think, of this was a gentleman I met some years ago now, I was, at a, I was at a conference, and he was a pastor from India. I was introduced to him by somebody, kind of giving his backstory, and we were talking, and I was just trying to find out from him, hey, tell me what's going on in India, this, that, and the other. But I had found out that he was here in the States, and he was going to be going back home facing criminal charges for blasphemy because he lived in a region of India where there was pretty, pretty intense persecution. Um, he had friends who lost their lives, that kind, of, that kind of level of intensity. So he was going back to face false charges and potentially jail time because two men had basically gone to a judge and lied and said he had done certain things that he hadn't done. And I was like, man, that's heavy. I'll be praying for you. And he was on my mind for like the next year. So a year later, I see him again at the same conference. And he's there. So I walk up to him. I introduce myself. I said, you probably don't remember me. I said, last year we met. It was at this conference. This is what you shared. What's going on? How are things going? Did you go to jail? And he laughs. He starts laughing, like just this like joyous laugh. And he goes, oh, they're brothers now. I was like, what do you mean they're brothers now? He's like, they're a part of my church. I was like, you're their pastor now? He's like, yes. I was like, hold on, how did this happen? And he says, well, one of the guys got really sick. And he goes, so some people from my church went over to him. They prayed for him. God healed him. And he came to faith in Jesus. And now he's a part of our church. And he's like, and the other guy, one of his family members got sick. So the pe- like some people from my church, they went over, laid hands. They prayed for him. God healed him too. And then they all came to faith. And now they're all part of my church. And he's like, so the two guys went to the judge and told them that the, the charges were false and, and everything, everything worked out. And he goes, and, and now, they're, now they're members of my church. And I was like, and I was sitting there stunned. And the thing that's incredible about this story is, and, and, and I was inclined to this as well. Initially, I thought that the, the, the miracle of the story was the healing that God would do this for somebody. But more and more, I'm convinced that the miracle was how loving those people were. Because these weren't like the leaders in the church. These weren't the elders. These were just normal church folk. And when this was happening, instead of viewing these men as their enemies who need to be defeated and having a spirit of competition or hatred or hostility, they went to them in love and in humility and in service and laid hands on these people and prayed for them. Let that sink in. That's the miracle. And that's the kind of people that God calls us to be. You see, someone once said that we're to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And it's his way that is the way of justice. And living and submitting to his law or Torah or instruction is the way of life. And it was this way of life that ultimately defeated Rome. Rome didn't fall by the sword. Rome fell by the gospel. Anything else is trusting in trash bags. So we walk in his ways, turning from idols of power and control, but we also have to make what God has done known. We have to make what God has done known. So look with me again at Isaiah 42, verses 5 through 7. He says, Thus says the Lord." Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and the earth and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the blind, open the eyes that are blind, and to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So in this section, we're we're seeing God declaring specifically what he's going to accomplish through his servant, Jesus Christ. And I mentioned before Isaiah. uh, 42.6 was one where we see God distinguishing the servant from the people and the nations. And so in this text, when he says, I will give you as a covenant for the people, the people that he's speaking here specifically are the nation of Israel. And so the servant is given as a covenant for the nation of Israel. This highlights something pretty significant. Anytime God says, I am going to establish a covenant with you, that's a big deal. He did this with Abraham, and he did it with the nation of Israel through Moses. You see this in the book of Exodus. So God's saying, my servant's coming. I'm going to establish a covenant with the people, the nation of Israel. And then also that he shall be a light to whom? The Gentiles, the the nations. To open blind eyes and release those imprisoned in darkness. And this has clear ties again to to the promise that God made to Abraham, that through him the nation shall be blessed. So here too we have the blessing of hindsight, knowing how all of this was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus came fulfilling the Mosaic law in its fullness. He lived the perfect life we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve. And he rose in victory and vindication over sin, death, and Satan. Fulfilling God's covenant that he established with his people in its fullness. And in his death and resurrection established a new covenant. So for example, we're going through the book of Hebrews. That's what the entire book of Hebrews is about. This new covenant that we are now in that has been established by Christ in his blood. And we also can look back with clarity, seeing that Jesus is the light to the Gentiles. We see this, for example, in the Gospels. Mark 5, verses 1-10, through 10, there's this crazy story where Jesus goes to this region called the Gerasenes. And the Gerasenes was a Gentile region. And he shows up, and there's this crazy demon-possessed guy. And Jesus casts the demon out, and it's the one story where the, the, the demon's asked to go into a herd of swine, to a herd of pigs. And he says, yeah, sure. So they go into the pigs, and they run off and drown in the sea. Like, I read that story, I'm like, what? Well, I don't know. This is what happened. And then this, then this guy is, is now freed from his demonic possession, and then the, the local farmers, probably the pig farmers, come out and they're like, hey, 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 you got to go, man. This is a bad day. So they ask Jesus to leave their area. But the guy that Jesus healed, who was a Gentile, it says that he goes off into his town telling everybody what Jesus has done for him. We also see, for example, in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, Jesus tells the apostles, I want you to go and make disciples of all, nations of all the gentiles so we have clarity and from this we can clearly grasp that god has not left us wondering what his intentions are his purpose and plan is to seek and to save those who are lost in darkness and we see this fulfilled in jesus who came to seek the lost and the sick and the sinful and he calls us to join him in this venture but there was a cost and there is a cost to this sort of way of living isn't there through the ages, the church has risked reputation and liberty and even life itself in order to proclaim Christ, to make the good news known, and, and for the church to go and bear witness to those who are, who are lost and in darkness. There has been always been, rather, a risk for the church in doing this. And this was true even of Jesus. This was especially true of Jesus, who was labeled a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's in Matthew eleven nineteen. 19. Now, for us today, there's really no modern equivalent of what a tax collector is and how they were perceived collectively by the larger culture. But I think one example that holds true for us, so that we can kind of get a picture for what that label, friend of tax collectors, meant, is there's a gentleman by the name of Martin Shkreli. That that name may ring a bell, and some of you may may be like, I have no idea who this is. So a few years ago, um, back in, I want to say 2015, he, there was a gentleman, his name was Martin Shkreli, he was the CEO of a pharmaceutical company, and they bought the rights to a drug named Daraprim. Daraprim is a drug that was used to treat those who had a compromised immune systems, so people with HIV and other issues. And he took that, bought the rights to this pill, and then jacked the price up from $14.50 a pill to $750 a pill overnight. And there was this collective cultural agreement that this guy is a dirtbag. And he was all over the news. And there was nobody that had a positive thing to say about him. And if you knew Martin Shkreli, just to be associated with him was to risk your own reputation. And what was so interesting, and I found this intriguing, didn't matter where you were, everyone agreed that guy is a dirtball. That guy is a loser. That guy... And there was this sense in which not only were were we, uh, did everyone feel just, just, right? And righteous in writing this guy off? They felt justified and even more righteous to do it. Facebook, social media, the news media, everybody had their, their guns targeted at Martin Shkreli. And so guess who Jesus was hanging out with in his day? The Martin Shkreli's of his day. So seeing Jesus, we know that his purpose is to seek and save those who are lost in darkness. And so we have to turn from idols of comfort as we make him known to all. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we willing to take similar risks to reach those in darkness? You see, it's not always comfortable to tell others about Jesus, is it? I remember my first experience with this. I was hanging out with some friends, and I didn't even initiate the conversation We're just hanging out, talking. My friend asked me a question. I start talking about Jesus and this, that, and the other. And then his wife comes up and cussed me out and kicked me out of the house. I was like, did not see that coming. I've had similar experiences since then. Maybe you've experienced that. So talking about Jesus, there's sometimes a risk. It's not always comfortable to share the gospel. It's not always comfortable to follow Jesus into the relationships he will lead you in. Have you ever had one of those relationships? Right? Where you're like, you feel God saying, I need you to go minister to this person. And you're like, that guy? No. Look at him. Like, Find somebody else. I'm not not a compassionate person, Jesus. I'm not a patient person, Jesus. I just don't have it in me, Jesus. Jesus will lead you into relationships with individuals that you have zero in common with. And he calls you to love them and to serve them. Is that comfortable? Absolutely not. But is it what you're called to? Yes. Why? Because Jesus cares about them, and he wants to use you to impact their lives. We're called to join Jesus on his mission of making disciples of all nations. And that's not just for some super Christian who bears the title of pastor or whatever. Like, if you're here and you claim Christ and to be his disciple, you're called to join Jesus on his mission of making disciples. And anything else than agreement and submission to that call is disobedience in the life of God's people. We are called to be humble, loving servants who establish relationships with those who we have nothing in common with, not because it's good for us, but because we love Jesus and it's good for them, and we're called to be loving servants. So you might be rejected, you might be ridiculed, you might be slandered, and you might lose reputation. But at the end of the day, is Jesus worth it? and are we called to be to both be and to broadcast the light to those in darkness so we turn from our idols of comfort to make Jesus known just as we turn from idols of power so that his ways of justice may be established among us as his people a way of loving service to a lost world but why look at Isaiah 42 verses 8 and 9 god declares i am the lord That is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And at that time, guess what he was trying to point to? My Messiah, my Son is going to come, and He's going to show you the way. And any other way, any other thing you want to trust in is just a trash bag. And so first and foremost, we do it because God alone is worthy of worship and devotion. God alone is worth of worship and devotion. He is the author of life and the sovereign king over all of history, knowing the future before it comes to pass, and at the, at the very inception of creation, like he was there, he's been there, he's eternal. Nothing is outside of his scope and hand. And his servant will establish justice among the nations. Jesus, he will lead those in darkness out of captivity. And so seeing Jesus, we know the steadfast love of God That is our only hope. And so we must glorify him through our faithful obedience to his ways today. Will you walk in the ways of this world using force to secure your comforts through conquest? Or will you walk in the ways of Christ, our crucified and risen Lord, the suffering servant king of glory? Knowing Christ, will you relinquish all rights and privileges that you think are yours for the sake of his kingdom? Whose ways will you trust in? Yours, the world's, or the ways of Jesus Christ? Can you embrace the vision for your life espoused by Ask Guinness who said this, To follow Jesus is to pay the cost of discipleship and then to die to ourselves, to our own interests, to our own agendas and reputations. It is to pick up our crosses and count the cost of losing all that contradicts his will and his way, including our reputations before the world and our standing with the people and in the communities that we held dear. It is to live before one audience, the audience of one, and therefore to die to all other conflicting opinions and assessments. There is no room here for such contemporary ideas as the looking glass self, and no consideration here for trivial contemporary obsessions such as one's legacy. So my hope and my prayer is that we would follow in the way of our Lord, forsaking our comforts, So that we might bring the comfort of the gospel to even those who would make us their enemies. Those who are blind and captive in the darkness of this age. Because Christ is good. He is glorious. We know his grace. We know his mercy. We know he is the sovereign king of all history. He declared back then what he was going to do. He's doing it now and he's inviting us to participate in that. So that at the end of the ages all things shall be redeemed and restored and reconciled to the God of all creation. Our heavenly father and his glorious son Jesus Christ who has saved us. Let us forsake all comfort and all idols of our age and pursue with abandon the call of Christ and die to ourselves so that the nations may hear of the goodness and glory of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as broken cisterns. Lord, you pour in and it pours out. And in our brokenness, we are, we are inclined to trust idols that are broken cisterns just like ourselves. But, Heavenly Father, we know that you are faithful and good and true. And even though we, we, as ourselves, who are broken and leak out, you will continually fill us with your grace and with your mercy. So, Lord, enable us by your Spirit to cast aside all idols and all distractions. And, Lord, to turn from anything that we are prone to look towards for comfort and security and to give ourselves over to you with full abandon, trusting in you. Lord, you sent your servant who set the the path for us and, and, and showed us the way. And so, Lord, may we pursue him as we see your justice and the flourishing of life established first and foremost among your people and then among the nations as we bear witness to your goodness and your grace. And it's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.